brought a few things with me this morning from our house. I wanted to show them to you and give you a little bit of the story behind them. The first is a hand-carved goose. This is my wife's. It's not mine. It's my wife's. A lot of you know that I like to hunt waterfowl, so it might surprise you to know that this isn't mine. It's Tina's. She had her eye on it for the better part of two decades. She had asked the artist for it, at times almost begged the artist for it. She had hoped to have it in her possession at some point, and, and this last October, she actually pulled it off. She got it. Now, the reason that this goose is so special to her, well, it's because of the artist, but more than that, it's because she has a picture of every one of our children riding this goose like a rocking horse. And then she also has pictures of our two nephews and our niece doing the exact same thing, riding this goose like a rocking horse. When they would see it as little toddlers, they were drawn to it like a uh, ride at an amusement park. And they would swing a leg over the top of it and spend, I don't know how long, just riding the goose. Tina loved that. She loved watching them do that, and she has sweet memories of every one of those kids on top of this goose. So she asked the artist if she could have it at some point. For the longest time, he just kind of smiled at her like, yeah, we'll see. And then finally, last October, he sent it home with her. Now, like I said, the thing that makes it so unique is the artist. And that's always the case with things like this. The artist is the one that makes any work of art valuable. In this particular case, it's my dad. My dad's the one that carved that goose. Took a block of wood and went to work on it, and when he was finished, the goose remained. He is a talented, talented craftsman. And he's done that type of thing a, a number of times. Usually his favorite subjects have been waterfowl, and that's what he has created when his mind just sets its sights on a block of wood and what happens to be in there. But he's also done some other things. This one's very special. If you were to ask Tina, she would tell you that it is priceless. Priceless is an interesting term. It really is. We can attach it to all kinds of different things, like this shotgun. This just came into my possession this last February. I've wanted it for a long time. Came from my dad as well, and I had asked him for it years and years and years ago. But here's the thing. This was not my dad's. It's my grandfather's. It's an Ithaca pump shotgun with a polychoke on the end of the barrel. It was purchased at a hardware store in Wilsey, Kansas. As I understand it, my uncle was the one who first bought it, and he did that before I was ever born. Hunted with it for a while. My uncle wasn't an avid hunter, but he hunted with this shotgun for a while, and then the trigger mechanism went bad. It has a hair trigger. It still fires, but it has a hair trigger. A very, very slight breeze will set this shotgun off. So you really can't hunt with it, but man, is it ever a sweet shooting gun. I am telling you, a sweet shooting gun. And I have shot hundreds of rounds through it, but what makes it so special is what my grandfather did with it. When the trigger mechanism went bad, he traded his trusted old side-by-side -side to my uncle for this shotgun told my uncle quite a story about how he'd always had his eye on this and he really liked the way it fired and he really liked the way it looked. When in reality, my grandpa just wanted to make sure that no one ever got hurt. 
So he traded his side-by-side to my uncle for this shotgun, and it's the only gun I ever saw my grandpa hunt with. We spent a lot of time in the woods together, whether we were chasing squirrels or birds, but Grandpa had been hurt in a car accident, so he couldn't walk very good by the time I was old enough to start hunting, so he always chose the safe path, and that made it a little easier for him with this shotgun, but I was always intrigued by how he carried it, not understanding the story behind it, until I pulled the trigger on it the first time and found out how unsafe it was. But the cool part about it is what my grandpa did to protect everyone around him, particularly his family. So he would trade his old favorite shotgun for a broken one just to make sure that everybody would be safe. Because it's the only gun I ever saw him hunt with, I told my dad someday I would own it. And dad said, well, maybe you will. And then he never gave me the nod, letting me know for sure that I would. But in February, he said, why don't you take that home with you? It is priceless. It's not the most valuable gun that I own, not at all. But to me, it sits at one, or near the top of the list of my favorites. And it is one that I would probably run through flames to rescue because of the story behind it and because of the hands that carried it. It was my grandpa's. So it's priceless. It's priceless. In both of these situations, the shotgun as well as the goose, the value is not monetary. It's not material. It's sentimental. And we attach value in a lot of different ways, but for most of us, we have things in our life that fit in that category. They are valuable to us because of the sentimental value attached to them. I know you know what that means, but just in case you need a refresher, here's a definition of sentimental value. It's the value of an article in terms of its sentimental associations for a particular person, how we associate to whatever item that might be. That's how we ascribe sentimental value. Now, there's other ways to attest value to things as well or to ascribe value to them. Of course, there's the monetary valuation system. And again, you know what that is, but here it is. Monetary value is the amount that would be paid in cash for an asset or service if it were to be sold to a third party. There's a lot of different things that fall under the category of monetary value, like your salary, what you get paid. Someone has attached a value to what you bring to their business and they pay you accordingly. They look at the job that you're doing and the way that you do it and they ascribe value to that. And then you could take a look at everything in your home or in your garage or wherever it might be and you can attach monetary value. But every once in a while, we attach sentimental value, and that catapults things into the realm of priceless. Well, this last week, I was spending some time preparing for the sermon, thinking about value and how we ascribe it to different things, and I got to wondering about life, how we value a life. Now, like you, I have heard about the monetary value of the biological body for years and years and years. If you were to sell off everything within your body, they used to say it's worth about six bucks. Well, 
today, there is a new value. You want to know what inflation is like? Here's inflation for you. There are certain equations that will tell you that there is a different value attached to every part of your life. Now, follow this. Starting with your biological body and then moving into other aspects of who you are. And if you find the right equation, it can actually value your life for an insurance company to determine in the midst of an accident exactly how much you're worth. And there are people that top out, this is something, at $45 million according to this equation. And in this particular one, when you plug in all the appropriate information, it will tell you exactly how much they believe you are worth. Could you imagine if you were the one who typed in all of your information and it came back $45 million? I would never want my wife to have that information. <laughs> never want her to have that information. $45 million. Well, Tina was gone being a grandmother this last week, and so I had a little more time on my hands late in the evenings, and so I decided to plug in my information. Wanted to see exactly how much they thought I was worth, and it is none of your business. <laughs> it was shockingly low, shockingly low when I plugged everything into the equation, and so I'm not even going to tell you today because I'm, well, quite honestly, I'm in counseling over it. I got a couple appointments set up. I'm going to work my way through that. I found 41 different equations, 41 different equations that you could use to determine the value of your life. 41 different equations online to determine the value of your life. And after I went through just that one exercise, I found myself saying, well, I don't like any of it, so I'm getting out of that. But I was reminded that God has an equation that he ascribes to us when he looks at us to determine value. It's, it's a pretty impressive equation, actually. I want to show it to you this morning. But first, let me just show you how valuable you are to God before you see the equation. Uh, if you receive our email letters near the end of the week, I put these two passages out. I want to show them to you again. They come from the New Living Translation. Take a look at this. This is from the book of 1 Corinthians. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. When it comes to value, understanding how God sees us, that term high price sums it up. God bought you with a high price because he sees the value within you. His equation always lands right there. You are worth a high price. You ever wondered how high that price was? I know you have. Peter actually describes it for us in the book of 1 Peter. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. That's the high price that God paid for you. That's the high price that God paid for me. When we start wondering about the value of our life, the value of our existence, the value of who we are, 
we can look at how the insurance companies might see us. We could listen to the words of people around us. Or we could listen to the one who created us. And if we choose the latter, if we choose to listen to the one who created us, we will see how God sees us. And there is no way, there is no way, pay attention to this, there is no way that you can see anything but a high, high value. God sees you in such a way that He was willing to pay the ultimate price to purchase you back, to pay the ransom for you that He might know you, that He might have relationship with you, that you might know Him. It's really an intriguing thing when we understand that in Scripture. We can go to places like this in our Bibles just to find a a greater depth of understanding of this. This is Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. Why don't you join me there? Romans 5, verse 6. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Wow. Wow. In the realm of value, you have to pay attention to what Paul just said in the book of Romans. Before you even knew that you were worth a gift like that, Jesus died for you. Before you knew your own value in the kingdom of God, God knew it, and He paid the price for you. That's how valuable you are. Now, that's, that's priceless. That is priceless. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we might ask this question, and it, it's a good one to ask. Why would He do that? If we don't even understand our worth in the kingdom or our worth in His eyes, why would God do that? Well, there's at least two reasons. Take a look at the first one. He did it to draw us to God. God did it to draw us to Him so that we could know Him, so that we could walk with Him, so that we could talk with Him, so that we could live with Him, so that we could have union and fellowship with Him. Because without God doing that, without Him paying that price, it was impossible. Before we knew it, Jesus died for us. (coughs) But it is imperative for us to accept that so that we can experience this, so that we can be drawn into relationship with God. And God did it before we were even aware that we needed that. God did that because He looked at you and He saw value in you, and He said, I will do this so that I can have relationship with them, to draw us into Him. When we were stuck in our sins, when we were separated from God, a sacrifice was necessary. Doctrinally, it has a a unique title. It's called substitutionary atonement. Here it is. Really, if we boil down substitutionary atonement, this is what it means. Jesus did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. 
He paid the price that we could not pay, and it cost him everything. It cost him his life. So Jesus took our place. He took our spot. He died so that we don't have to fear death, that we might know God, that we might be drawn to him. We could actually sum up this whole idea in just a simple way. Here it is. This is the summation of all of it. Jesus died for us. Nope, go back. Jesus died for us so that we could come near to God. That's it. That's the summation of that first reason. Jesus died for us so that we could come near to God. Without him, we would be lost. We would be completely lost. Now, if we had an insurance company or we had any group of mathematicians that wanted to try to figure out the value of that and how they could make an equation that would sum the whole thing up, well, all they would have to do is open their Bibles to find it. Let me encourage you to do the same. Hopefully, you still have your Bibles open to the book of Romans. If you do, just turn to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3. For those of you that have mathematical minds, I want to show you a Bible study technique that I don't use very often. It was taught to me probably 25 years ago. And every great once in a while, I break it out just to understand Scripture at a different level, not necessarily a deeper level, just a different level. And this last week, I pulled it out of the tool bag. And here's the way it works. You can take an individual passage of Scripture, You cannot do it with a whole book of the Bible because you get lost in it. You can't do it with a long run of verses. But you can do it with an individual passage of Scripture where you translate the verse into a mathematical equation so that you understand it at a deeper level. And I'll show you how it works this morning with 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now we're going to stop right there. Listen again, but try to do it with a mathematical mind. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now, I did this very exercise with the guys that I pray with just a a few minutes ago, about an hour ago. We were involved in this exercise where I handed all of them a piece of paper and a pen and I said, I want you to turn that in to a mathematical equation. And then we went around the room and we looked at everybody's equation and we saw all kinds of intriguing things. You learn a lot about a person and how they study the Bible and how they see God by how they make this translation from a passage of Scripture into an equation. It was crazy intriguing to do it in that group as it has always been any time I have ever done this. So here's the way I would translate this mathematically. This is my equation for it. Jesus, the righteous who is greater than us, the unrighteous, died for us that we might have salvation. That's Phil's mathematical equation, which, by the way, I do not have a mathematical mind. So that's as simple as it gets. Jesus, who is righteous and greater than us, who are unrighteous, 
died for us that we might have salvation. That God will draw us near to Him. And that's salvation at the, the heart of it. And the Lord was willing to do that for us because He looked at us and He saw value. He saw you and said, I want a relationship with you and I'll do whatever necessary to make it happen. Well, there's a second reason that Jesus would do this as well. It wasn't just to draw us to him, and mathematically we can see how that works. The second reason helps us understand a little bit more of that value as well. Here it is. To reveal God's character to us. He wants us to know him. God wants us to know him. He really does. It isn't just that he wants relationship with us. It's that he wants us to know him in such a way that we have relationship with him. That we can know his character. That we can know what makes him who he is. We can understand him. This again is in Romans chapter 5. Listen to verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He showed his love for us, his character, his character, because he wants you to know him. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? The God of the universe, the creator of everything around us, said, I want you to know me. It isn't that he just wants us to acknowledge that he exists. He wants us to know him. Now, that's value. That's value. You take those two reasons and and wrap them together with the substitutionary atonement, what Jesus did for us that we could not do for ourselves, the fact that God wanted to draw us to him that we might know him. You put all that together and you land on this promise from the Bible. And this is the sermon series that we're in right now, the great promises of the Bible. When you understand all these things that we're talking about, here's the great promise that you will be able to grasp. And it is so simple. It's right up here on the screen. You are valuable. You are valuable. To God, you are valuable. And boy, does anybody else really matter? You are valuable to God. And I know some of you have to push past other voices that tell you that you're not. You have to push past things that that live deep inside of you, that try to convince you that you are of no value so that you can understand this truth. Push past those things. Because all you have to do is look at how God sees you and understand what lengths He was willing to go to that you might be drawn to Him so that you could really know Him. Once you get to that place, man, this is it. You are valuable. You are valuable. Do you know how valuable you are? And do you know why you're that valuable? Because when God created you, He created you in His image. Don't believe me. Believe Scripture. Let's go to the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. By the way, this passage of Scripture that we're about to read is so culturally relevant, socially relevant right now, that it is crazy. If there is any one verse of Scripture that you ought to have memorized and ready to pull out at the drop of a hat, given some of the things that are raging around us right now, it is this one. 
Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Here we go. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Do you see the cultural relevance? Do you see the social relevance? If it didn't just pop off the page, let me, let me throw it out for you. There is huge debate today about gender issues, whether we should do away with pronouns that describe someone as male or female. It is raging all around us, and it's one of the most ridiculous, ridiculous arguments that I have, I believe, ever heard. No exaggeration when I say that. That is one of the most ridiculous arguments I have ever heard. Because right here in the first chapter of the Bible, the very first chapter of the Bible, God settles the argument. He created us in His own image, male and female. Folks, at conception, that was determined. That was determined. Male and female. You were created in God's image, and as we talked about a few weeks ago, on purpose. On purpose. So God created you gender-specific on purpose. And the appropriate pronouns apply. Male and female. That's why I say that Culturally and socially right now, if there's any passage of Scripture that we need to grab hold of, it's that one because it settles it. It settles it. And there's ways that we could say that are so, that are so simple and so true. And when we do say things like this, Christianity gets sidelined for it, but don't worry about being sidelined because it is still truth. God said it, that settles it. And that's one of the best ways for us to hold on to that. This is not a gray area in the Bible. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. And so, no matter what culture and society is trying to tell us, the whole thing is already taken care of in the first chapter of the Bible. And if I can understand that, then I can understand that I was created on purpose and with great value. You ever thought about what that really means? That you were created in the image of God? Boy, a lot of people have. Wonderful scholars and theologians have batted that around and done a great job with it. Theologians like John Piper would say things like this. Humankind was created to be a graphic image of the Creator, a formal, visible, and understandable representation of who God is, and what he's really like. That's why you are of such great value. You were created in the image of God so that when people look at you and they see the Holy Spirit within you and they know what Jesus did in redeeming you and calling you his own, they see God. They see God. That's why you're so valuable. That's why this promise of Scripture is so incredible. You are valuable because you were created in the image of God. Man, somebody say amen. Okay, well, three of you agree with me. That's all good. But I'll give you another shot because I know it's early. Somebody say amen. amen. You are created in the image of God so that when people look at you, they can see God. You were created on purpose with great value. 
Now here's where this gets really intriguing and we can take it just a step further. You were not just created on purpose in the image of God. You were created uniquely. Uniquely. Now we know that there's two divisions in Scripture, male and female, but past that there's infinite possibilities. You were created uniquely. Last week we looked at this passage in Ephesians. Let's do it again today. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are God's workmanship. Isn't that cool? He's the craftsman. He's the artist. You're the result. Now, there are other places in Scripture that illustrate that at a deeper level for us. And I appreciate the fact that these passages exist. Like this one in the book of Isaiah. Why don't you turn to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Chapter 64. Isaiah 64. Verse 8. Still hearing some pages turn. I'll give you just a second to get there. Isaiah writes, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. If you're a person that cross-referenced things in your Bible, why don't you write right next to this verse in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. And then next to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, write Isaiah 64, verse 8. These two passages work very well hand in hand. You are God's workmanship. In order to understand that at the deepest level, understand it as a craftsman sitting before a potter's wheel. He is the potter. You are the clay. You are his workmanship. Now, here's one of the really cool things. We find out that God not only created us in his own image, but when we come to Christ, he does something really cool with the masterpiece. That's found in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 18, starting in verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do so. That word reworked, boy, if you highlight that or underline that right out of that passage, man, there is so much depth of insight in that. That's what God does for us in Jesus. He reworks the brokenness that sin brings on us. He reworks us. He reworks us. You are God's workmanship. He created you in His image. Sin came to land on you. And in Jesus, He reworked you. He made you into something different, something new. You are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus, Paul says, for good works. 
when you were reworked, you were reworked into that purpose that God has for you in Christ. Why would Jesus die for us? Because we are of unbelievable, infinite value in the kingdom of God. When the Lord looks upon you, He sees priceless. And He's willing to, through His Son, rework you into your purpose, your God-given purpose, because you are of great value, uniquely created to do what God calls you to do. Well, I was so proud of our church this past week. People were, people were doing things, and I was just hearing little bits and pieces of it as they were caring for people within the church and outside the church, meeting needs for people in the name of Christ, some of them doing very, very hard things, others just walking through life with folks. But they were living according to their unique purpose, doing what only they could do in those situations. And God had called them into it and turned them loose. Man, in those moments, God looks back and says, now that's a good investment. That's a good investment. They are so valuable. Look at what my children are doing. I'm so glad I paid the price and reworked them. That's my workmanship, God says. And he's able to look upon his children in moments like that and recognize that the price that he paid, it was worth it. Oh, it was worth it. Because his children are living according to his plan, doing what he designed us to do. Way to go, church. Way to go, church. So I was putting all of this together. Two different memes popped up on my Facebook feed. And it was interesting to me that I'm, I'm working on this message when these things just showed up kind of out of the blue, and I can't even tell you who they came from. I just screenshotted them, and then I, I copied the, the text off of them. Here they are. Take a look at the first one. I have no idea who wrote this one and no idea who posted it. The razor blade is sharp, but can't cut a tree. The axe is strong, but can't cut the hair. Everyone is important according to his or, his or her own unique purpose. Oh, so true. That's how God created us. Now, the second one, I actually know who it came from. This is from D.L. Moody, but I couldn't tell you who sent it. I just screenshotted it once it showed up. Here it is. Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody. 40 years learning he was nobody, and 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody. Yup, that's the way it works. That's the way it works. That's the value. That's the value that God sees in you. And sometimes he has to strip away some things so that that value can come out. Sometimes he has to strip away some aspects of life so that you can become who you are. Sometimes he has to rework the pot. And he does that in Christ. It's interesting to me, having grown up in a craftsman's home. And when I say it's interesting to me, let me, let me help you understand how interesting that is. I do not have the same gifts. I do not have them. Even though I am my father's son, Dalton Allspaw is my father. I do not have his woodworking abilities. If you don't believe me and you think, Phil, you're just being too hard on yourself, let me show you a little something I carved for my wife. 
I was on a backpack trip in the mountains of Colorado, sitting at about 10,000 feet. I had a knife in front of me, and I thought, I'm going to make something for my new bride. We'd only been married about a year. I said, I'm going to make something special for her that lets her know that, that I was thinking about her while I was up here. Spent the entire week working on it. This is not just a one-time shot kind of thing. Whittled this for her. It's a, it's a snake. Can you tell? I had two choices when I was done. I could either tell her that I whittled her a stick, and that seemed a little, little parochial, or I could tell her I whittled her a snake, and so I, I whittled her the snake. Now, that was done 30, 32 years ago. 32 years ago. She has kept this against her will the entire time. There's been a number of different moments where I've pulled it back out of the trash and said, honey, I know you didn't mean to put that in there. You want to keep that. I have displayed it in our home as a, a symbol of my love for her, only to find it hidden in closets, different things like that. Boy, when she brought the goose home last October, there was a special place for it in our house. This, I went downstairs and dug through our pantry just this morning to pull it back out, just to show you. So when I tell you I do not have the same abilities as my dad, I'm not lying. Dad, though, could carve some amazing things, and like I told you, he, he usually would choose waterfowl to do that. This is the first one that he gave to Tina a number of years ago. She had asked for this pintail duck that he had carved, and he gave it to her, and she was blessed when he did. But growing up in his home, here's what I, I came to understand, because I would ask Dad things like this. I would say, Dad, how do you do that? Because this would start from just a huge block of wood. And I know those of you that have been around woodcarvers have heard this before, but it's just so powerful to me to hear my dad say it. He says, I just look at that block of wood and I take away everything that is not duck. I just carve away everything that's not duck. And it's intriguing to me the tools that he would use, the different chisels that he would use, and the, the different pieces of sandpaper that are all used in the process, everything kind of unique. Dad has a place that he likes to go in Springfield, Missouri to buy carving tools. And even though he has a shop full of them, he still goes after new ones at times because the old ones wear out. And so he has to get new ones to bring back in so that he can take away everything that's not duck. He can carve away everything that, that needs to just disappear. So he has to get new tools, even though he sharpens some of the others. Reminds me of passages of scripture like this because God has tools that he uses to bring out within us everything that he wants to the uniqueness of his workmanship that we might live up to our full value Romans chapter 8 verse 28 reads like this and we know that those who love God we know that for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose God uses all things the good and the bad, to rework you, to bring out your value, to shape you into what you were created to be, that you might see your own value and that he might get to see it and you might live up to it and you might find your place in the kingdom of God with your unique talents and skills and dare I say, gifts from Him, to be who you are supposed to be, that others might see God. You are of great value.
You are of great value. Created that way. On purpose. To be who God wants you to be. I hope you know that. I hope you know that. If you're in the middle of one of those difficult times in life, wondering what God is doing, then why don't you allow yourself to think that maybe he's carving away a little bit that's not duck. Why don't you allow yourself to think that the master craftsman is sitting at the potter's wheel reworking some things. Allow yourself to be reworked unto your greatest value. If you're in the midst of a a really good season in life, why don't you realize that God's still doing the same thing through blessing. He is reworking you that you might see Him, that you might be drawn to Him, understanding His character and understanding how He sees you because God works together in all things so that He can help you live according to the purpose for which you were called. All things. You are of great value. And it isn't just sentimental to God, nor is it monetary, because it goes so far past that, according to what Scripture says. You are of such great value. Jesus died for you. Isn't that a cool promise of Scripture? Isn't that a cool promise of Scripture? You hang on to it for all you're worth. And if you don't believe it, let us talk to you about it. Why don't you stand? We'll pray together this morning. Father in heaven, thank you for seeing us the way you do. Sometimes life clouds our vision and keeps us from doing the same. So thank you for seeing us the way you do. But Father, right now I'm I'm most intrigued by the dual sides of creation where you created us in your image and then some of that gets stained and broken through sin but you don't leave us there you rework us and father that's what happens in jesus hmm, i'm intrigued by that blessed by it convinced of its power I know what happens when you rework people. I know what happened when you reworked me. Thank you for that. Pray, Lord, for those that are struggling to understand their great value to the point that they have yet to be reworked by your Son. Would you open the eyes of their heart that they might see themselves the way you see them and they might put their hope in Christ, and in Him alone. We ask that in His name, with great faith and great expectation. Amen.